you should sacrifice your earning potential to get the right boss that's going to help to mentor you properly. Welcome to the Dental Head Start Podcast. I'm David Keir and this episode, I'm excited to sit down with Dr. Jeff Hall. Dr. Jeff Hall is an orthodontist. He's in private practice, but he does a lot of other things. He's the founder of OrthoEd, a platform where you can find the orthodontic education to get you to that next level. He's also involved with SmileFast. He was the person who brought Invisalign to Australia. He's um, doing so many different things and I find that fascinating, the entrepreneurial side of people. But he's also in this podcast got a lot of advice for graduates and tips around the future. He talks about the myths in orthodontics and in general dentistry. He talks about delegation. He talks about things that you should think about when you're setting up an aligner case. And I couldn't help myself. We talk a lot about business in this podcast. Dr. Jeff Hall is a passionate contributor to the dental profession and I really hope you enjoy this as much as I did. And stick around for the Ripe Global segment at the end of this podcast. We've got Dr. Lincoln Harris talking about the patient you just can't get numb. It happens to us all. So I'm sure this will be useful at the end. For now, my conversation with Dr. Jeff Hall. Dental Protection Limited, they're more than just an indemnity insurer. Of course, they'll provide the best support they can when you have a tough time and you need them. But that goes without saying. More importantly, they're trying to help us prevent these things and they're doing this through their online education, their numerous blogs and articles, their live education and now a podcast called Risk Bites that is bite-sized pieces of information to help you prevent medico-legal risks. And during this COVID-19 pandemic, they are providing unparalleled support to their members. So if you're a member, you'd know all this, but even if you're not, you can get a lot of this information online. Check DPL out and thank you DPL for supporting dental students and graduates and for supporting the Dental Head Start podcast. Dr. Jeff Hall, welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. David, thank you for your very kind invitation. Well, it's my pleasure and it's, um, it's, it's really, I'm excited to have this conversation because of all the things you're doing in dentistry, you're teaching people orthodontics, you're a practitioner, you're an orthodontist, you're a business owner. Um, it's really exciting. But when I was doing a bit of the, you know, looking into you and what you're doing, um, I noticed you introduced yourself as the myth-busting orthodontist pretty often and I'd love to hear a bit more about that and explain the myths and tell me how you bust them. Okay, well, okay. That, that's a very that's a very interesting question. Uh, I suppose the first thing is I really don't care too much about establishment, so I do. I'll, <laughs> so you'll have to appreciate that I might say things that some of my colleagues may not appreciate, but I'm just I just love calling a spade a spade. So in, in my area of orthodontics, yeah, there's lots of different myths. You know, whether you should, yeah, about extraction, non-extraction. Yeah, but the people say if you extract teeth, you destroy the profile. People talk about uh, retention with different types of retainers, etc. Yeah, and all and most of these myths are absolute garbage. Okay, somebody somebody taught somebody who taught somebody who taught somebody. Okay, and we we see the same in general dentistry as well. That yeah, a lot of it is not really true evidence based. It's just the fact that somebody taught you and somebody taught them and somebody taught them and it gets passed down like an old wives' tale from generation to generation and until you look at things. But, yeah, a couple of the myths, you know, I'll be honest with you, David, your younger listeners may not may not like this myth, but they may take this myth with them as they get older and they 
own their own practice. For example, one of the one of the myths that I, I that I find is that you have to chart you have to have the same practitioners charging the same amount in a practice. So by that I mean you can have an older practitioner like myself who's been out for 25, 30 years, and let's say I charge fifteen hundred dollars for a for a crown prep for a crown, and then somebody who's just first year out of uni, and you see this all the time, they come into my practice, and what fee schedule do they have? They have the same fee schedule of $1,500. And I ask myself this question, why should somebody who's just come out of uni have the same fee that, I've been, that I have, that I, and I've been doing it for 30 years? And I say that on the basis of the only reason me, the, the older practitioners actually makes more money than the younger practitioner is because we might be faster. But it's to do with knowledge and skill. You know, no different to when you go to your accountant or, or to your lawyer. You have a senior lawyer who charges at a higher hourly rate than the junior lawyer. And that should be no different in your business principle and dentistry. So I know the younger people may not want to hear that, and that's fine. But take that point home with them when they own their own practice and they become seven, ten years out and they and they bring in an assistant or a dentist into their practice, that assistant shouldn't be at the same fee level. It's okay to have different fee structures in your practice. Every other business does that. And it's a great way to push patients towards the younger dentist by doing that. Otherwise, why would a patient want to move from their established dentist to the to the younger dentist? Mm, it, it makes so much sense. I have heard you actually talk about this before, and I think it's something that we, you know, until you say that, you think I hadn't thought about it that way. I will say you've probably set off about half of the guests, uh, the listeners. Sorry, they're probably like, oh, I don't like this guy, but <laughs> but they, they'll they'll like me when they become when they own their own practice. Yes. <laughs> All the orthodontic knowledge we're going to get into. But I love this theory. I actually think it's really smart. I, I don't love it from, because I am also the young dentist who, you know, perhaps should have those different levels. But it makes a lot of sense from the business ownership point yeah, well, of view. Well, as we were talking before off air, you know, one of our mutual friends is, is Jesse Green. And why, and why Jesse and I get on very, very well is because we think outside of the box and we take business principles to dentistry. And what what we've been lacking in dentistry is exactly that. We've been lacking business principles, and you know to get back to this thing that you know we, everybody does things the same way. And I'm sure once again another thing that the young dentist is not going to like, but this concept of forty percent commission. Okay, um, I'll be happy to be very honest with you. I was paid forty percent commission when I was back in 1983. Okay, when I when I first graduated dentistry. And the boss that I had who graduated about 1975, he was paid 40% commission. And if you go back historically, everybody's been paid 40% commission since the 1950s. Now, I can tell you, our practice overheads have gone up significantly in that period. Yeah, we've got sterilisation, we've got significant, yeah, we've got superannuation, we've got all these other costs of staff, etc. So this concept of paying 40% commission you cannot be sustainable because most practices would have to run 60 to 70% of overheads. Also, the other part, I have to tell the, a young dentist like yourself, David, that if you're getting paid 40% commission, 
my advice to you is do not buy a practice, <laughs> okay? Because you are in such a good wicket on a on a forty percent commission in a good if you've got a good practice and patients are coming in to see you, you are in such a good wicket. Don't go and buy a practice because from a business point of view, all you're going to be doing is getting your wage. So why would you want to get an investment and put all your money into something and and not be able to have holidays and have cash flow issues? You know, for example, when when I go away over Christmas, New Year for two or three weeks, it takes me about four or five weeks to recover with all of the costs. You guys can go away if you're if you're on a commission. You go, that's fantastic. I go away on my holidays. So it doesn't cost me anything to do so. You don't make any money, but it doesn't actually physically cost you. Like in COVID, it still costs us. We've still got rent to pay. We've still got all those other issues. Okay, you guys aren't earning money, but you're not losing money. That's one of the things with COVID in particular. It's um, definitely hit the business owners very hard. And I, I think you raised some good points talking about business. Obviously, Dennis, we always say, oh, we're not trained about business in dental school but then we then we still go into business without getting the training and i think those points are really really wise i want to touch uh, i did just mention COVID. you are in melbourne jeff how have things been for you and your referring practitioners um oh look it's been pretty pretty tight we've come back in the last week and a half it's interesting being an older practitioner and i only now work a day day and a half in my private practice it doesn't worry me particularly okay because i run my education business but, mm. my, yeah, but my dental colleagues, they're finding it really tough. And then as soon as you get back from COVID, you are inundated with all these patients that you had to see for eight weeks. Mm. So and so I don't think we've really felt the impact yet. I think we're going to finally feel the impact in probably another six months' time. Yeah, I agree. What's been very interesting is there are a certain number of patients who have actually got more money now than what they've ever had before mm. because they can't spend it. You know, they've got JobKeeper and all that type of stuff. So they're actually – and they're not going out, so all they're going to do is want to feel better about themselves. So aesthetic dentistry could be could be on the rise, but it's only going to be on the rise for a limited period of time. Yeah, I completely agree, and that's what I'm seeing myself. I'm in New South Wales, so I've been practicing for the last couple of months, and they've been very, very busy months with some things coming out of the woodworks you wouldn't expect. Um, so I think that's what it might be for a period of time. But as you said, and many other people in knowledgeable people in that area, it may not be for a long time. So it's interesting. Do you have any messages for the people who are going through all of this? Anything you advise for the people in Melbourne? Yeah, I do. well, I've got advice for, I think, people in the whole of Australia, you know, because we've been around for a, cu- for a couple of recessions now and history always repeats itself. Mm. You know, history always repeats itself. And these are the ideal, this is the ideal time, an ideal opportunity to start to differentiate yourself from your colleagues and competitors, you know, whether it's to, whether it's to do an implant course whether it's to change the focus of your practice, definitely improve your customer service, yeah, because I think that's a big thing. When you're all busy, you don't care. Yeah, people are coming in. But it's these times that you want to stay busy, and the good people will stay busy. It's not that it's not all doom and gloom for everybody. But if you don't, if, if you don't look at how you can improve yourself and your practice, Things get things get out of control very quickly. The downhill slide is very quick. 
Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things people can do now that perhaps they have time to focus on those things or get ahead of it and build it now. Especially as we're talking a lot to students and graduates, they can really work on those communication skills. They can do online training. They can now start to get to some live training, um, build the skills to keep you busy. You mentioned a lot about um, you know your business acumen that you, you've, you're doing a lot of things and you've learned a lot of these skills outside of dentistry. Tell us about that journey. How did you get into the business side of things? By, by making a lot of mistakes and losing a lot of money. <laughs> okay. um, I've always, look, I've always had a passion, and I'll be honest with you, you know, you probably don't ask me the question, why did you do orthodontics? And I can sit here and say the reason being because I hated being a general dentist. And, the, <laughs> and, and this is a true story. I was, a, I was in general practice for a few years. I, I actually owned a practice in a suburb in Victoria called in Keysborough. Mm-hmm. And I used to have this recurring nightmare that my 10 worst patients would turn up in the one day. And I'd break out <laughs> in a sweat at night. And, and this is a true story, David. And I, I came into work and and in the morning of this particular day, five of those 10 patients turned up. Oh, no. It's funny because everyone listening has those patients in their mind flashing past them right now. So, yeah. And so I actually cancelled my afternoon and I actually went to... I, I went to Monash University, which was the, the closest university to uh, my practice in Keysborough, and I applied to do law. And all I wanted to do was to sue every <laughs> dentist that I could find because I hated it. And fortunately, they didn't accept me. Mm, very so, fortunate. So then I had to find a way to salvage my dental degree. And and I did a, I did an orthodontic course, which the guy is still lecturing today called Skip Truitt, and some of the young people may may have know of him or their bosses have been trained by him and he was a great salesman fantastic salesman and he he gave me an enthusiasm to do to learn a bit more about orthodontics and orthodontics was i find it really quite funny because i'm sure it's the same now with you young with you younger guys but we all got into dentistry because we were a little bit brighter than the average person okay nothing to do with our with our communication skills or our gift with our hands, but just because we're a bit brighter. We get into dental school and you've got got to admire our academics, how they can destroy your brain. Because (laughs) because you come out with this technical approach that you've you've got to do a class one amalgam and unless it's 0.7 millimetres, if it's 0.75 wide, you failed. Okay? Nothing to do with diagnosis or anything else. And you know, and that wasn't me. I was a terrible general dentist, and I got and then so I decided I'm going to go to America and do orthodontics, and that gave me the fire in my belly. There was that's an expression in the state from the states, and it was fantastic where you could start to think about things, and I always had this entrepreneurial bias, and I think in the last ten years it's become even greater because you get a little bit bored with doing the same thing all the time. And it's meeting really interesting people, stimulating your, your mind and seeing how you can make a business work. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing. I definitely have um, – uh, that's what I find as my creative outlet, to be honest. That's where this podcast came from. It was like, what's the best way I can spend my time doing something else? And it, the podcast was the, the way I went. So, um, orthodontics in America, um, you've found the fire in your belly. Is that because you found orthodontics, because you are not doing general dentistry or because you were with Americans? Yeah, very good question. Combination of both. But I think it, it, I think it was to, to do with 
being in the States because, and I don't think Americans are any better than Australians at all, okay? But the great thing about being in America, you're just exposed to so much more because the population is so much larger. Yes, exactly. So you get exposed to so many really good minds, everything, um, and it, and you get exposed to all these new techniques, etc. So it's just been real, and they have a very, they believe in delegation. And so I came back from America really wanting to delegate a lot and be able to scale up my business. So that's probably how I learned about the business part of scalability. You know, and we ran a practice in Caulfield at one stage in Melbourne, um, and that's another story we can get onto. That I sold it to a corporation and had a big falling out about two years ago. Um, but we were starting 500 patients a year, and we never ran late. It was a real big buzz and was high-quality work. Tell us, how do you feel that you achieve that in a different way to what, how most people work? Well, I, I had four hygienists. And I would, you know, and I was basically like a university instructor. I'd go around from chair to chair to chair and say, do this, do that, do that. And I would do what was really important. So I'd put all the brackets on. I wouldn't let anybody do that. I'd make the diagnosis. But to put an arch wire in or, you know, to put a bond retainer on, we can train any, any monkey to do that. You know, you don't have to be a dentist or an orthodontist to do that. And, in fact... I think today opens there today for the for the young dentists. Yeah, you've heard about a line of treatment, and there's a lot of myths about that as well, because I was actually the one who brought aligners to Australia back in back in in two thousand. And you've heard there's many myths about that, and one of the great myths is that you accept what the aligner company says, but if you know what you're doing, you can actually get some very good results, mm. and you can delegate it all to your hygienist or therapist. It's the one area of dentistry that 100% of the clinical work can be delegated. Mm-hmm. In orthodontics, it's it's one of the things, though, I find with that that's a challenge. So I work with a hygiene team. I'm very lucky in that regard. And um, I do clear aligners in a very small capacity. Um, one of the problems, I think, for many people listening is that they're not the business owner, um, so they can't change systems in that way. Do you have any, um, you know, are there any small uh, low-hanging fruit, so to speak, that we could work with our hygiene team in a more associate level um, to, to achieve that? Or do you think it is a limitation of not running the systems? The no, business? no, because I have, I have a saying in my practice, if you speak to my staff, there are no problems, just solutions, okay? And I hate it when staff come to me and go, oh, Jeff, I've got a problem. I just look at them and go, so what's the solution? And they go, they don't, I don't know. And I say, don't talk to me then. And I, and I do that to the same with my, with my children, et cetera. For every problem, there should be a solution. So, for example, what you're talking about, David, you could, you could go to the um, – because I'm assuming you're talking about being on a commission. Mm-hmm. So if you're on a commission, you obviously want to generate more income because that's good, that's worthwhile for everybody. So you could go to your um, to your principal and go, you know what, I want to use the hygienist more to my advantage more so. And you say, I'll pay the hygienist out of as a laboratory bill. So you actually use that hygienist as your employee, and you can then do all of these aligners through your hygienist. So you just go back to your to your to your boss and say, "Hey, I will imp- I will pay for the hygienist 
as a laboratory bill. And it makes a lot of sense because you can leverage off that and you may be paying X percent off, but you're still leveraging up. I guess you have to hit a minimum threshold to really make that an effective use of time. But. It's not a, it's not a high, th- high threshold because let's say you're charging a line, you know, you're talking about, say, a line of therapy, okay? Let's say you're charging, we'll say, 8000 for argument's sake. And let's say you're using Invisalign, which is the most expensive system out there, but still probably the best. And it's the three and a half thousand dollar lab fee. So you've got a four and a half thousand dollar profit for that case, all being done by the hygienist. So if you're paying the hygienist, the hygienist will take three hours of time to do that case. So you pay the hygienist what sixty dollars an hour, one hundred eighty dollars for you to make two and a half thousand dollars or whatever it be. Hmm. Exactly. It doesn't take long for that to make sense. Yeah. So it doesn't take long at all. And, you know, once again, it doesn't have to be all or none. You say, okay, I, you, you say, okay, to your boss, can I will employ the hygienist for three hours a day? You know, you don't have to employ it for the whole thing. I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about things. I, I like that in that you're thinking as a business owner, as the associate. And I think that's something that many associates miss is the fact that they are within a business and, you know, we it has to be a profitable system for everybody for it to be, it has to be win-win-win or not everybody's going to be a part of this. You won't have a job if it's not profitable for your business owner. That's exactly um, right. But just don't make the mistake that you would put the hygienist on a percentage commission because then the hygienist ends up getting all this money. And that's the mistake that a lot of dentists make. Oh, I want to incentivize my hygienist to do more work. Well, they're not bringing in all the aligner patients. You are. So you, you don't want to pay them a commission for it. Just maybe pay, if they're really good at it, maybe pay them $80 an hour instead of 70 or whatever it be. They'll still be happy. Yeah, the, the like anything, the diagnosis is more important than the actual physical doing of the the action of doing it. And that's why, you know, orthodontic planning, it costs so much because you have to get that right or it's all going to be wrong. Do you have any suggestions around that or talk around the different aligners and some things that people, some myths or some mistakes that people are making? <laughs> You've seen it all. <laughs> well, we've only got another, we've only got 40, yeah. another 40 minutes. Because I could... I've got hours for you, Jeff. <laughs> Everyone knows this is a long podcast. <laughs> I know, this could be an enormous session. Um, okay, let me let me talk about my experience with different aligners. There's a lot of different. There's a lot. There's probably four main aligner companies at the moment. Obviously, we all know about Invisalign. We've got um, Short Smiles coming to the equation. Smile Styler is now here as well, and um, we've got a new company called Angel Align, and then we've got Clear Correct. They're probably the big ones, and then you've got all these smaller ones around. I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be really blunt. Clear Correct is the cheapest, but where it stands today, the software is terrible. I would never use it. The other companies are okay. Invisalign is still the gold standard, unfortunately, but it's very expensive. And I think somebody has to come into the market at a cost like Clear Correct, but with a product more like Invisalign. And as soon as somebody does that, they will take the market and it'll, get, yeah, it'll be a big market to take. Do you think uh, Invisalign has the is a bit like Apple in that people are 
um, fanatics, if you know what I mean, and um, they won't change? Or how do you see that in the future? Um, I think too many people looking at the at the price okay, at, the, at the moment, and I understand price is obviously important because you've got to make a profit. But to go $400 less and not get the quality of the end result doesn't make much sense. So you, it's got to be significantly less. So Invisalign, the recommended retail, I think, is 3450 um, the other product, the other products are at two thousand nine hundred or three thousand dollars. It's not enough of a differential, as far as I'm concerned. I still think Invisalign is the best product out there, but there are newer products coming, which I think is going to revolutionise the line of business. And we're working with a particular company at the moment where we want to get a line of therapy to the general dentist at eighteen hundred dollars. So rather than thirty four fifty at eighteen hundred. And it be as good as Invisalign. That would be our ultimate goal, because then we've got a cost-effective product for you guys. So that's one part. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Is that something that's open knowledge, or is that something closed doors? All right, hold this space. Well, <laughs> and hopefully by the beginning of December, we will have it here. That's fantastic. Well, we'll we'll invite you on to talk about that maybe at some point. Um, Tell us a bit about the mistakes people make. You obviously see a lot. You're doing ortho-ed, which is training dentists, so you've probably seen all the other side of things. I, <clears throat> there are so many mis- Firstly, there's so many mistakes that are made with regards to aligner therapy. You know, the, the biggest myth is that the, the aligner company, the end product that you get is fine. I have never been involved in a case where I haven't had to go back at least three or four times to the aligner company and get the setup redone. Because it's not just aligning the teeth, it's the biomechanics of the attachment, it's the staging, it's all these other things. And in fact, Invisalign have asked us to do their training for them now, okay, outside of Invisalign. So because they realise they have a real problem with treatment planning and the other companies are coming on board. So we actually teach general dentists how to look at aligner cases. But we've also done something which makes it, I think, really interesting for you guys. We, Because everybody has this concept, aligners are just for easy cases. It's actually not true. You can do really difficult cases with aligners if you know what you're doing. So we've set up a treatment planning service for aligners called CAPS, which stands for Clear Aligner Planning or Complete Aligner Planning Service. And we do all the treatment planning for you. So we do, we, uh, we do it all. And by doing that, it doesn't matter, David, if it was your case or my case, because it would be the same result. Once we've got the treatment plan, that's a beautiful thing about aligners, is once we've got that initial setup and we've got the staging and the planning, the attachment's correct, it doesn't matter who's doing it. We, all we've got to do is train a hygienist to put the attachments on, do a bit of IPR and make sure the aligners seat. That's it. It's a fantastic service. Um, we'll obviously link to that and um, and people can use that. I, I have a couple of quick questions. Um, first, you're talking about aligners and the way you look at a case and the way you think about it. Can you actually walk us perhaps through the your thought process? So you're thinking first biomechanic um, movements or you're thinking first staging or first global. How do you look at it? What do you go through? Well, that's a really good question. And don't have to give all your secrets away. <laughs> I, I don't think in this podcast... I, I I can give you all my secrets. I can, I can tell you a lot of my mistakes. 
the first thing I'm going to be – so when I, when I get a clean check, but we'll, we'll call it clean check only because that's Invisalign's yeah, yeah. name, but this would apply to any system. So if I use the term clean check, it's a generic for any aligner system, okay? Um, I would look at that and I would and I would look at the predictability of the movements first because that's where you get burnt a lot of the time. Yeah, because I call a lot of setups cartoonodontics. It's just a cartoon. <laughs> And this is where you need to have a bit of knowledge to know, is this predictable? Is it feasible? You know, for example, on a clean sheet, they could distalize the lower arch seven millimeters to correct the class three. And I've seen it done. Yeah, yeah. And I've said doctors say well, to me, but if Islam can do it, I just look at them and go, well, that's great, but it'll never happen. We've got to remember it's, <laughs> it's every action has an equal and opposite reaction and <laughs> you can't move all the teeth <laughs> with one piece of plastic. That's exactly right, David. You've hit the nail right on the head. So then you've got to look at for every movement that's being done, what attachment do you need for that movement? But what are the reciprocal effects of that movement on other teeth? So, for example, for example, let's say you're going to extrude your upper central incisor because that's what you need to do. You then end up with a reciprocal force on your laterals that they're going to intrude. Now, do you want them to intrude or not? No, you don't normally. So you need an attachment on your lateral. Okay, even though the even though the lateral has not been designed to move in the setup, because you've got a extrusive force on an adjacent tooth, there would be an intrusive component that you have to you have to look at. If you're intruding anterior teeth, for argument's sake, there's an extrusive component posteriorly, and if you don't put attachments on, the aligners aren't going to seat properly, and you're going to lose the effect. Mm -hmm. So there's all these parts to it. You've got to look at the staging very much because aligners work very well if you can encapsulate the entire tooth surface. So sometimes you have to what we call round trip the case to get a better surface contact from the aligner onto the tooth. So it's a case-by-case -case basis, but it, it's not difficult, but you've got to just understand the principles. Mm -hmm. How do you suggest people learn the principles? Obviously, OrthoEd is a big part of learning orthodontics, but um, what do you think a graduate should be thinking about when they want to get into aligners? Well, we actually just do a, a, a quite honestly, we just do, a, we do a, a two-day module. Next year's going to be a three-day module just on aligners. And we, why we've extended to three days, which is of interest, is the first day is now going to be diagnosis, just mm. general diagnosis, which people have not taught very well in the past. And you still need to understand the principles of diagnosis, is it an extraction case? Is it a non-extraction case? Should it be a surgical case? You still need to understand certain principles because it won't matter whether you're doing aligners or braces, they still stay the same. That's great because my question was going to be, should we be doing a basic orthodontic diagnosis course? Obviously, we need to know this stuff. Don't get me wrong. I mean, do we need to go and do X course before we start aligners or do you think there are things out there like your module four? We actually had um, a question on Instagram, which was exactly that. Um, do you think that's a sufficient st for starting aligner treatment as a graduate? Um, I think if you're being supervised, Yes. Okay, because I think if you if you leave it up to the aligner companies, they'll tell you that every case can be treated with aligners. Mm. But if you're being supervised, and not necessarily by me, but there are other there are other people out there that you know do the supervision. I think there's I think Theo Basis Group does some, 
and, and Vandana does does quite a bit. If you're being supervised, then we are going to protect you. It's a, it's a good point because in this, you know, this journey we take in dentistry, um, some of the things are quite complex and we don't know what we don't know. So, if we don't have a mentor or someone over our shoulder, we can get in a lot more issues, so to speak. Yeah, David, I'm going to disagree with you on one point. They're not difficult. All of orthodontics is really, really easy, seriously. And I'm living proof, you know. I think I came, <laughs> I, I think I came 48th of the year out of 50. <laughs> okay, and I think my argument would be: I think the dumber you are, and you don't clog up your mind with with um, <laughs> with with thoughts that have been which are myths, you're actually going to do much better. But I do believe that you need to have a mentor. That's it's no different to you guys in a young practice. Okay, the best yeah you could you should sacrifice co- uh, your earning potential to get the right boss that's going to help to mentor you properly that's worth more to you in your long-term um understanding knowledge and enjoyment of dentistry than anything else yeah yeah it's something we cover a lot on this is talking about that and 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 the first couple of years are formative for your career and that investment the return on investment the compounding on that growth that you get early on is just going to be exponential so it's worth and so it's really important that you find the right mentor in anything you do. Now, do you have any suggestions for finding that mentor? I know we talked about CAPS system and some other people who are doing similar thing in the orthodontic space, but think about that graduate who's about to graduate. Um, what should they do looking for a general mentor? That's a good question. My personal feeling is for the first two or three years, you're so inundated with just trying to understand basic dentistry. So... I wouldn't be going too far into new education for the first two or three years. I would be spending a lot of time with my boss going through cases and then finding somebody else probably after after 18 months outside of the practice that will help mentor you because what happens is after about 18 months, you just know how this guy, you know, your boss is going to treat and plan, et cetera, et cetera. So sometimes you just want somebody else to give you a fresh pair of eyes of how you would look at it because there's not always a right and wrong answer. I think that's what people forget. There's not a right or wrong answer. We've got to follow principles. You know, the diagnosis, and this is what we teach in our course, it doesn't matter what you do in dentistry, the diagnosis should be the same for everybody. You know, if you're a doctor... You diagnose asthma, okay? You, you can't have two different diagnoses. It should be one diagnosis. However, the treatment may differ with one patient, with, 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 from one person to another, yeah? For example, you might have a, you've diagnosed caries on a 4-6. That's fine. Everybody should have the same diagnosis. But if you, you might treat that with a composite resin. Somebody else might treat that with a gold crown. Yeah, somebody else might do, might do an endo first. The treatment may be a bit different, but the diagnosis should be the same. That's a really good point. And and I like how you come to, you know, you're going through cases with your boss or within your own practice first because I guess the philosophy will then align a lot more, which goes back to choosing a practice where your philosophy already aligns, which is a hard thing to do. I was going to say that's a really difficult thing to do until you get to know your boss. So what if they're in a position where they're not so sure? then what I would be doing is, like all these things, work there for four or five months, 
make a decision and reevaluate whether you find another job. Because like you said, David, your first few years are the most formative years. So you want to you want to negate and not worry about oh am I making a hundred thou or making hundred twenty thou, because it's the good things that you do in your first few years that's going to dictate what you're going to do 10, 15 years down the track. So my 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 thing is there's there's an expression that my father taught me penny wise pound foolish. So in other words, don't worry about that you're going to lose a little bit of money now, okay, in your early years because you're going to make up for it tenfold, a hundredfold down the track. But the other part that I'm going to say, and this, I'm, I'm going to be pretty harsh here, a lot of people we got into dentistry, and, I, and when I say I'm going to be pretty harsh, if I had my time again, I wouldn't be an orthodontist, I wouldn't be a dentist. I always wanted to do law and I never did it. And I've got a very good friend of mine do you, have you heard of the Barefoot Investor? Yeah, certainly. Okay. okay. Did you ever listen to the Barefoot Investor? Yeah. I was, oh, yeah. Hook, line, and sinker, actually. Have you heard of Michael Kemp? <laughs> yeah. Read his book. Yeah, the, the gentleman who worked with him in the investment advice. Is that who we're talking about? Yeah, I read his book. <laughs> Do you know Michael was a periodontist? Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, because I remember that from the start of the book. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He changed his his tack, didn't he? Yeah, well, well, <laughs> well Michael was my is my closest friend. Oh, there you go. Wow. Okay, he's the godfather of my son. I'm the godfather of his. Oh, wow, small. Okay, yeah. so yeah. I, I know Michael very well, and the reason why Michael did dentistry. So what happened was Michael didn't enjoy didn't enjoy dentistry particularly. Okay, and he ended up doing an MBA. And got into accounting and got into the finance industry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When I came back from the states to, uh, as an orthodontist, Michael said, "Well, how much could you earn?" I said, "I can earn X amount of dollars." And Michael, yeah, he, had, he just started having a young family at that stage, so he decided he'd go back to dentistry, and he did. He did perio, and he was very lucky. He wanted to do ortho, he didn't get in for different reasons. But he got into perio, and he got in right at the time when implants was becoming popular. So he made a fortune. But he made a fortune, but he invested that fortune. Yeah, he invested it. He was getting, I think, a 30% return on his money. Yeah, he's a pretty wise investor. There's no doubt about that. Okay. So he retired probably, I think, 12, 13 years ago. I think he retired. Um, and he still gets a 30% return on his money. <laughs> okay. And... The, the, point, the point that I want to get at here is do what you loved, do what you love, okay? It changed, and I was too scared when I was 21, 22 to move across to, and do something else. I thought, I'm going to waste a couple of years of my life, okay? And all I can tell you is if, if, if you don't love something, find something that you do love. And I found orthodontics. For, I was just very lucky I found orthodontics because I do love it. Yeah. Okay. If I didn't do that, I, you know, I don't know what I'd be doing today. But my advice to a young person is find what you love and focus in on that. Do you think that thing that you love can be a passion outside of dentistry that is supported by dentistry? Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, there's probably the one thing dentistry is great for, that's what Michael Kemp had and we all have, it gives you great cash flow. We are so fortunate 
in the industry, if done properly, we we have a great we have a great living. We're not going to we're not going to be multi multi billionaires out of out of being a dentist, but we have a great income and a great lifestyle. Yeah, it can support the thing we can be passionate about as much as because I, I do fear in a way that um, some people, young dentists, especially when you get out and you're probably, you know, you're in your first year out now, you're listening to this or maybe second and you're going through a lull, you know, you're really starting to be like, oh, man, I'm not sure about this every day. <laughs> um, but like I think it's important to note that we all go through that. That's the first thing. Even someone as obsessed as me goes through that, but also it can then fund the other passion. Whatever that is, exactly right. That's what Mike. That's what Michael did. Yeah, he, fun, he, he funded another passion. Um, I've done the same with with other businesses, and you know, but I couldn't do it without. I couldn't have done it without the industry. Exactly. And really yeah, and I'm going to be so thankful because it's given me an enormous amount. Yeah, an enormous amount. Yeah, and I owe dentistry a lot because of that. Tell us about some of the other businesses and how you got into starting them. So, well, obviously, you've got OrthoEd, um, and then you're involved with SmileFast um, and some other things. <laughs> where, where, do we start, where do we start? Have you heard of a company called DentalEd? Yes, indeed. Okay, well, I started that company. <laughs> so that's how OrthoEd, yeah, the, the name OrthoEd, or the name DentalEd came from OrthoEd. So I owned OrthoEd many, many yeah. years ago. Yeah. And then I, and then with a guy called Emmanuel, I set up mm-hmm. uh, DentalEd as well. And that's been, and long story, long story, but yeah, we had a falling out of the partnership. And that's another story we can talk about. When you get partners, make sure you get the right partner. It's Tell that, us more about and, that. Yeah, and I'm talking about in your dental practice, whatever it be. And yeah, that's a that's a whole topic of another podcast. Do you know Howard Ferran and his podcast? I know how I've been on Howard's podcast. Yes. Yeah. So he's um one of his sayings that I picked up is going into dental partnership with someone is like getting married but not having sex. <laughs> so <laughs> you've got all the challenges of getting married, but you're not having some of the fun parts. I don't um, know. It's been, it's been such a long time since I've had sex. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> he is yeah. totally right. Yeah, I've got. It's funny, I've got a business partner in my orthodontic practice, Martin, best partner ever. And why is that? Why is that? Why do you guys work so well and how do people find the right person for them? Uh, because he listens to me. Do you he listen to him? him? <laughs> no, I don't need to. No. He, he's really loyal. It just happened that um, I got him into the orthodontic program in America and he's yeah. just the most loyal person. In fact, yeah, to give you a story, yeah, we had a practice that I never worked at. We were 50-50 partners, and you know, um, and I and yeah, he would get a he would get an inc- an income, and we would split the uh, profit 50-50. He wanted to do some renovations, and I, yeah, so I made a bit of quite a bit of money out of this practice. I never did anything, and uh, we wanted to do these renovations. And the only argument we had was Martin wanted to pay for all the renovations, and I refu- and I wouldn't let him. Which is a pretty amazing argument to have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, because I was making money out of it, Martin's yeah. great, but I've been involved in so many other partnerships which have just been disasters. Yeah, absolute disasters. Um, so, so yeah, I was involved with Dentally. That was a great idea. You guys have heard of Denticare Mediplan? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I started a company called Mediplan back in 1995. I was the first. We were the first patient financing scheme in Australia. Mm. Okay, lost a fortune. 
Okay. So there's a. Um, Can you tell me? Uh, and I, you don't have to go into this too much. We'll, we'll probably change tax soon. But starting something like that, obviously passionate about it, doesn't go well. How do you bounce back? And tell us a bit about that story. What lessons did you learn? Okay. You bounce back by fortunately having a high income in an organic <laughs> practice. Yeah. Stay in dentistry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because otherwise you could go into bankruptcy. I tell you, I've, I've learned two or three major lessons because I set up the Invisalign Centre and I set uh, and all that type and all that stuff. Okay, I'll tell you what I've learned. One, you choose your partner well, and let's say you get you go into a business outside of dentistry, just for argument's sake. Never have a partner that you give that you give them a partnership for what we call sweat equity. Okay? They must everybody must put money on the table. That is really important. And I've been involved with IT people and we did IT businesses and oh I'll give you I'll give you my time. Well, you know what? They never do. Okay. So it's really important that you that everybody puts has skin in the game. That's one part. And you've got to and you've got to have a mutual uh, interest with your partner. The second thing though is make sure you make sure that you get involved in the business that you know something about. Like I got involved in the finance business. I knew nothing about finance. I knew about dentistry, but I didn't know anything about finance. So, yeah. So, for example, David, here you are talking about CPD and dentist CPD. You know about dentistry. So you, you are totally qualified to do to do this, okay, which is great. But if you, if you decided to, to go in and do what most dentists do and you go ahead and Buy a restaurant or buy. A farm. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd be, you'd be nuts. You're going to, you, you know, you, you're going to do your testicles in on it. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be funding it from your dental practice. And the the and the third rule, and I've learned this. Okay, I've learned this the hard way. And my financial advisor Michael has been with me for twenty, yeah, you know, twenty five years. Has said to me, never be the first, be the second, and do it better, which I think is the greatest advice. Because when you're the first, you have this par- you've got to do a paradigm shift. So Invisalign took a long time to take off. Okay, yeah, great product, great sexy product, but you know what? Anybody else that comes to the market now is going to take off much quicker. Oh, I love that. It makes so much sense. The path is already set. Just, just yeah, do it better. Well, and I, yeah, I, I, I developed a a. a um, a product this is 10 years ago we called it embraceables so these are little clips that we put on patients um, brackets in orthodontics that they're removable okay so we can put we can put the patient name on it we can put the patient telephone number yeah and I still believe today it is going to be enormous but I had to do this whole paradigm shift yeah and I had a business partner who didn't? Who wasn't a dentist? Didn't understand the concept, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, after half a million dollars, it it pay it sort of fizzled out. I still want to do that before I retire. But what's interesting about six or eight weeks ago, I see Invisalign are putting colours on their aligners. You can get colours on your aligners now. And I'm thinking, ten years ago, I had this concept, and I was laughed at. So never be the first. That's the last thing I'm going to do in my career is make embraceables work. I can't wait. I can't wait to say it. I'm looking forward to it. 
Tell us a bit about OrthoEd. Obviously, one of the businesses you're pretty passionate about at the moment, um, educating dentists. Tell us the story. Yeah, that's where my real, that's where my main focus is at the moment, obviously, and will be has been for about three years. And um, yeah, so basically, we educate dentists in the whole gamut of orthodontics, starting off with diagnosis, treatment planning, all the way early treatment, obviously aligner therapy, which is a big part, fixed braces, extraction, non-extraction, interdisciplinary cases surgical cases and you know it's interesting because one of the things yeah people are going to listen to this and go i don't want to do all that and you know what i don't want you to do all of it i think you'd be nuts if you if you did my course and you go ahead and decide i'm going to do full-on orthodontics okay and yeah you you use the phrase in the podcast the low-lying fruit and that's what we talk about pick the low-lying fruit but knowledge is power, and the more you understand, the better you're going to be as a dentist. So I believe that if you, let's say you did the OrthoEd program or you do Derek's program or you do whoever's, you should you should only be treating 70% of the orthodontic patients that walk in your door because the other 30% are not financially viable for you. The reason we as orthodontists make money is because we – because we run four chairs. Now, my new practice has got five cha- five treatment chairs in there and two conference room chairs. That's just for me. And we and we delegate everything out. If you're a if general dentist in one chair, you will not make money out of orthodontics. You can out of a line of therapy because you delegate it, but you're going to make more money out of doing crown and bridge. Now, a lot of my clients do orthodontics, one, because they want to drive more patients into their practice, and two, they want an interest factor because they get bored with dentistry. And so that's what it really aimed. You're a much better dentist because you understand diagnosis and treatment planning in an, in the whole holistic viewpoint of occlusion, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. You, you see more because you understand more. It doesn't mean you have to treat it all, but it means you can treat some, you can refer more perhaps to your orthodontist and patients are getting better outcomes or at least they're understanding their situation better. That's where, and hopefully you can refer patient, you can refer out less patients. You know, as Jesse Green would say, the churn rate of the practice will decrease. Mm. Because that's a bit, because a lot of the time, unfortunately, when patients get referred to a specialist, they get involved in a specialist merry-go-round. You know, they come and see me and then we refer them off to my to the periodontist, you know, and then by that they go off to the endodontist, they go off to the prostodontist, they never come back to your practice again. Yeah, so the, the less you can refer out, provided it's in the best interest of the patient, that's great. And my orthodontic colleagues are so pissed off with me. I think they're <laughs> pissed off with me because they're not as good looking as me. <laughs> but, but the other reason they're pissed off is because here I am teaching general dentists and going, hey, you guys can pick the low-lying fruit. Mm. And so now orthodontics has always been in the past, swings and roundabouts. Yeah, we, The orthodontists would charge the same fee if it was an easy case or a difficult case. If you guys are taking all the easy cases, they're left with the difficult cases. And the problem is my orthodontic colleagues don't all know how to manage difficult cases. They're used to managing only easy cases. They don't like managing difficult cases. So it's time for these specialists to step up. I mean, can you imagine, David, if you referred 
put your a patient comes in to see you and you refer off an upper right central incisor endo to well that's exactly right that's it's only like that for ortho every other specialty they want you doing the basics because they do not have the time <laughs> and so it's about time that we as specialists teach you guys because the training at dental school is abysmal and in fact it's, it's abysmal because the orthodontic society has told the guys who run the dental schools do not teach general dentist orthodontics. It's it's in it's in the charter of the Australian Society of Orthodontists. You're not allowed to put on fixed braces in dental school. Why? Yeah, yeah. What's the worst thing that can happen? Especially if you you watch, you you know, obviously you're not doing it on your own. You you're learning from it, but. Um, yeah, we could talk about that all day. I oh, know here you here you guys are you, you you can go ahead and cut away half the mandible to take out an impact, impact today, <laughs> okay? But don't don't glue a bracket on a tooth because who knows that tooth might move down by a quarter of a millimeter. <laughs> and the worst scenario is I take the bracket off and replace it the next week and it's all back again to the yeah. right position. There's just about nothing which is irreversible in orthodontics unless you've made the wrong decision and you've taken out teeth or whatever it be. Mm. But that's a, that's a diagnostic part, not a technical part of putting braces on. Considering all of this, the, what's the path for someone? They, they get out of dental school, we've got a relatively basic understanding of diagnosis, um, limited understanding of any treatment. Um, we know the names of things, that's about it. What's step one? Um, tell us about, you know, obviously through author ed, but what are the options? What do you recommend to someone if That's a really good question. Out? I reckon step one, is to do a line of therapy as quickly as possible because I think that's now that, that can be done very quickly, especially um, especially with a bit of supervision. You could be doing a line of cases, and you know you don't need a great deal of knowledge of orthodontics because you've got other people behind you to help you. So I reckon you could do that in your in your first few years and get a real passion or an interest in seeing patients happy because we you know, patients can be very happy when their teeth are straighter. Mm. I reckon you you want to wait till about at least five years out, and then you want to look at do, doing some orthodontic courses. But yeah, you may but you you've got to figure out what your passion is. You might not have an interest in orthodontics. I tend to, obviously, I'm biased, but you might have an interest in doing implants. Right? Yeah, and it doesn't worry me what you do. But if you, I don't, you probably haven't had David Penn on at all. No, but I know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David is the most brilliant entrepreneur that dentistry has seen in Australia, okay? David, David's got an amazing story to tell. If you ever get a chance, you definitely want to have David on, okay? He, I have all the respect for David. Humble guy. I think he's a billionaire now, and he's a self-made billionaire, okay? Yeah. yeah. So he's just a – I know Jesse had him on as a podcast through my invitation um, a few months ago. I was really impressed. But Dave, the reason I bring David up, David believes – that the future of dentistry will be a mega practice where each dentist in that practice will be a mini specialist. Okay, so David, for example, you might you might have an interest in endo and perio, and then somebody else in the practice might have the interest in ortho and and pro and crown and bridge work. Mm. So you end up having a mini specialist practice, for want of a better phrase, and you guys are referring to each other within the practice. Yeah. But you've got to have two air, two subspecialty areas that you are really, really good at. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is the future of dentistry. 
I think that makes a lot of sense. Like, obviously, if we are keeping it within house, but we have a special interest and we are highly skilled in those areas, we can keep 90, 95% in house. And the 5% that you're going to refer out are probably the nutters that you don't want to see in the first place. And that's what so, you want to use the specialist for. Well, I was going to ask two questions now. Um, one is tongue in cheek. <laughs> Considering you just said that, do you recommend people go and specialize? I don't see that. I can't see the reason why. Honestly, if I was a general dentist today, I, I don't want to be so, yeah, as a specialist, I don't want to see the most difficult of difficult patients. I want to choose. I'm stuck. I have to see everyone that comes in my door. I don't, I don't really, but, you know, I'd piss a lot of dentists off if I, <laughs> if I kept on pissing patients off. Um, yeah, and you don't make money out of those difficult ones. So, no, I, I, I can't think, apart from oral surgery, and, I'm, and when I say oral surgery, I'm just talking orthognathic surgery stuff now, okay? Because, yeah, taking an eights and all that other stuff, that's in the realm of the general of a good general dentist if you want to do it. So I don't think there's any reason for a general dentist to specialise. I think the market is certainly getting a lot tougher for specialists. We certainly still need specialists, but it's a tough, tough time. Exactly right. So there will be a need for – and you're totally right. There will be always be a need for some specialists, but – we should minimise the number. It makes a lot of sense. Considering future, and uh, you were talking about how David Penn sees the future, where do you see orthodontics in 10 years? And this was a question from Instagram from um, TC Cox. I, I, I'm going to see that most orthodontics will be done within, the pra- within a practice. There'll be a minimal number of orthodontic specialists. And I, I can even see now the people who have done their orthodontic specialist degree are going to go into mega practices, whether it be a Bupa or, you know, or a Maven practice where, you know, where they end up being the, referral, the go-to referral person for that type of um, corporate group. But I don't believe that the, the run-of-the-mill specialist, suburban specialist is going to survive in orthodontics, that's for sure especially with Invisalign and all these other things there, you know, everything's been made so much easier. What about the um, the technical side? You just said it's been made a lot easier with Invisalign and other things. What are we at now? So some people listening are students with not a lot of exposure. So where are we at now with the technology and, say, 3D planning, et cetera, and where are we going to be 10 years? Uh, look, that's a really interesting question We could, because there's technology and there's technology, Okay. Um, and sometimes I think we, we go a bit overboard that technolo- technology could be a pretty picture. At the end of the day, you've got to still use your mind and your brain, okay? And I think that's what we, that's what we keep forgetting sometimes. I think it's interesting, and it's a little bit of an aside, but, but I'm going to explain to you why I say that. There was a very famous dentist who's still alive called Derry Rogers in Melbourne, and Derry and Derry used to – he was the first person that would advertise in the Yellow Pages. This is going back 28 years ago, and everybody hated Derry. And then they all they all um, advertised in the Yellow Pages, which is you know, our, our telephone book. Derry stopped advertising. <laughs> when, when Derry was the only person, he was getting hundreds and hundreds of calls. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And the point is – when everybody is doing something, it's like the stock market. When everybody's buying, you should be selling. When everybody's selling, you should be buying. And the same thing should happen in dentistry. When everybody's doing something, you've got to find something different to do. Point of difference, just like so any business. No, you know, you've got to find your own little market niche. Now, 
there's so much so, things are becoming so easy in in orthodontics yeah, you've got the straight wire bracket. You've got to remember, 40 years ago, we had to put bins in the wire, and that's probably what you guys got taught at uni, like I did, to scare you off, how you had to bend all the wire. You know, I, I may make one bend in a wire once a month, and that's what I'm seeing, you know, 100 patients a day. So it's not that often I, I, I bend a wire anymore, you know. So, th But you still have to understand the diagnosis and all the treatment planning and all that because – Whatever you get in the digital technology is just a pretty picture. It always comes back in the end to our diagnosis. And that's why no matter where technology goes, we are still um, part of this system and we are the crucial step. We are. We are. And you know, this is why I find it, you know, everybody's upset about Smile Club Direct, you know, those you know, do-it-yourself uh, aligner companies. Well, if you go ahead and just press the button approve it each time, and you're not putting your own mind and your own brain behind it, how can you criticise Small Club Direct? Because you are just like a Small Club Direct person. It's it's the knowledge that we talked about, like you like you mentioned at the beginning, David, about the biomechanics, the staging, all that type of stuff. That's what makes us different. That's what people are paying for, our knowledge. In exactly the same way, when you go to your specialist accountant for superannuation, it's their knowledge that you're paying for. And that's what we have to start to push to our patients. They're not paying for a technical procedure. They're paying for our knowledge. Mm. And that comes back to the point of differential in fee structures makes a lot of sense because we're paying for the experience. It was, or, really, it was interesting. Many, many years ago, there was a dentist, um, and I think he still might be practising, and, and how he charged patients was... He didn't charge for a one one two or whatever it be. He just said it took me an hour and a half. My hourly rate was five hundred dollars an hour plus my lab fee or materials. He just charged it, and that's what lawyers do. You know, every time you ring up a lawyer, you have a cup of coffee, you know, or you go in and have a cup of coffee with them, you get a bill for another hundred and fifty bucks. <laughs> that's what we should be doing. You know, I had a, I had a lawyer in once and. Like, and I, I said the fee $7,000 or whatever it was, and I don't like lawyers. You know, I've got about five of them for different businesses that I do, and I don't like, but I don't like them as people at all. And the lawyer, and this lawyer said, well, so what's your hourly rate, Jeff? What's your hourly rate? And I said, it's a fee of $7,000. And they kept on bugging me for this hourly rate thing because that's how lawyers think. And I said, and I eventually I got pissed off with it, and I said, it's $700 an hour. And she looked at me and she goes, I only charge five hundred. We're more knowledgeable than you guys. <laughs> and then she never came back, which is actually perfectly fine. <laughs> but I've got, I've got this. You idea. mean she didn't come back? <laughs> well, there are some people you want to piss off. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a there's a real skill there. <laughs> no, yeah, we, we had to stand the thing. Yeah, we, you you always have patients go. Why is it so expensive? Mm. So I have a little box with some brackets and wires and said, look. We have two choices. There's one for $500 and there's one for 7000 And they all look, their eyes light up, the patients go, what's the one for 500 So I bring out the box. I say, this is your do-it-yourself kit. Yes. And they go, so what do I do with it? And I said, that's for you to do it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> did you, ever hear, the, did you ever hear the story about <laughs> the uh, the guy who came in and, uh, he, and he hammered a nail on the wall to put up a painting? And the guy, and they said to, and 
and he gave a bill to the, to, to the to his client who happened to be a dentist of a hundred dollars, and the dentist goes, "What? How can you justify a hundred dollars? You know, you just put a nail on the wall." And he said, "Well, it's a do- it was a dollar for the nail and ninety nine dollars to know how to to know where to put it." And the dentist, you know, the dentist goes, "I'm a dentist. I can't charge that hourly rate." And the guy who was putting the nail on the wall goes, when I was a dentist, I couldn't charge it either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so changing careers, <laughs> something people do. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And, and look, I'll give you one other story very quickly. Yeah, because I, I love stories. And my, you know, my brother's a rheumatologist. He's a professor of rheumatology. He tells yeah. the best stories out of everybody. Yeah? <laughs> they've all, so they, they should all have a moral to, to the story. But David Penn, was at one of my courses, and this we used we started off teaching what they call well, what we call smile fast. It was what we call a short term orthodontics, yeah, lining up the teeth in six to nine months. Okay, and this was a while ago before Invisalign became decent. So it was a it was a very popular approach back then when Invisalign and aligner therapy was very poor. So our fee for, our fee for doing these braces for six to nine months was about $6,000. So we, 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 we argued that we charged about three quarters of the fee of a full treatment case back then. So back then, a full treatment case was, say, $8,000 because we're comparing clear upper, clear lower brackets, okay? David Penn sat in the back room and goes, you should be charging $18,000 for what you're doing. I nearly died. And this is why David is a billionaire and I'm not. <laughs> and David and, and David's analogy was David said, if I'm going to Melbourne to Paris on a Concorde and it takes me four hours, are you going to pay more for that than you are for Melbourne to, to Paris in a normal plane for 24 hours? Of course you are. So this in other words, we have this bias that if it's a shorter period of time, we charge Less for it. Oh, sorry. If it's a short period of time, we should charge less. And in fact, yeah. it should be the total opposite. It's the same with um, you know doing treatment fast isn't a bad thing. It's it's something that the patient needs. You want to, the quality has to be the same, but fast is better. And a patient might say, "Oh, it only took you five minutes." It's like, well, it's all right. I can take sixty minutes if you want next time. Patients don't actually want that. <laughs> I'm going to um, start to wrap things up a little bit, but I want to ask you one question. You're doing so much. You have done so much. How do you find the time? How do you actually structure your time to get so much done? There's an old expression. If you want something done, give it to a busy man. And I I get into work at 6 o'clock in the morning, okay, and I find the the most productive I am is when nobody else is here, okay, and and – do you plan things very meticulously? Yeah, I do. I, I write myself a list of what I want done every day, and if I don't get it done, I, I really go, I go home quite depressed, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, that's the goal. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, is, it is the goal, and, and trust me, I don't get it done every day, but that is my goal. Um, and I'm just very focused, and you just t- and you just got to tick things off. You have a to do list. You just got to tick things off. I like that. Writing the list and getting that done each day, I, th- I found that to be a very effective tool. It, it really is because if it's not written down, and I, yeah, at the end of every year, for example, I actually write down my goals for the next twelve months. So on Boxing Day, I spend an hour and I write down my goals. Yeah, and I do so personally, professionally, yeah, physically, etc. I fail mm-hmm. the physical part quite <laughs> most often, but I write it down. 
And every three months, I go back and revisit them because you've got to make yourself accountable. I like getting those little tips and it's as much as a, um, a selfish <laughs> question, but I think there's a lot of people out there trying to get a lot done and it's useful stuff. And where do you want to be in five? Yeah, and the, and the goals are not just for 12 months. The goals are 12 months, a three-year goal and a five-year goal. You know, I don't think you can go too much past five years, mm. but, you know, but a five-year goal is really important because you might say, Dave, that you might say, I want to do my master's degree. I've got to decide which, you know, what's, what I'm going to do with it. Not that I recommend you doing that. Mm. There are so many now mini master's degrees or post-grad diplomas you know, that you can do that, you know, that gives you that extra knowledge that you should get. Yeah, exactly. There's I don't there think many, you need many to do ways. A, a, a total academic master's degree because there's so much time wasting that goes on. Um, let's let's wrap it up with two last questions. I want you to give a couple of points of what you see. What mistakes do you see the youngest dentists making, graduates, and probably in ortho, obviously? I don't see, look. I'll be honest. I don't see a lot in ortho because I think I think most young dentists are scared off by it. Maybe the mistake is that they leave it too long before they start. Uh, I, th- I think the biggest mistake is that, that they listen. They listen to people that don't know what that they don't know. Okay. Um, for example, they might listen to their boss who's done a course, but it's it's a blind leading the blind. So they've got to be they've got to feel comfortable with who's teaching them. Okay, um, the biggest mistake I think for, as a as a young dentist is not finding the passion. There, there, I believe there will be something in dentistry that will rock your boat. Yeah, that will really float your boat and go. Hey, I really like that. So find the passion. Yeah, David, you're yeah, you're doing this with the podcasting. There's plenty of areas in dentistry that, if you think outside the box, you'll find something that you really enjoy. Now, whether or not that's going to be your full time job or something you do out of interest, and you use dentistry as your way of giving you a nice income to fund all of these nice things, so be it. But I think you want to find something that really that you can really enjoy out of dentistry. If you can't, then go and do something that you really enjoy because life is too short. Yeah, fantastic advice. Last question. I want you to imagine you're talking to every single person graduating um, this year, for instance, and you can teach them one thing. Everyone's listening. You're going to teach them one tip, technique, or piece of advice. What would be that one thing you'll teach them all? God, that's a that is a really hard question. If you told me after five years, I'd go. I, I, I want to teach you really competent line of therapy. Okay, as an orthodontist, I would love to sit down and teach a new graduate some really strong business principles. Yeah, forming partnerships, who to go to for all that stuff, who to get, get financial advice. I tell you the biggest thing, actually, no, the. I remember when I was a new graduate, somebody told me about superannuation. They said, because back then you could put $7,000 a year into superannuation, and I didn't do it. And biggest mistake of my life. Because if you just do, if you do, do that from the day one of graduating, you are going to have a fortune by the time you're 55. Yeah, it doesn't even matter what you do. <laughs> It'll all work out, exactly. Yeah, if you speak to Michael Kemp, he will tell you the compounding interest effect is just enormous. Yeah. So that would be the that would be the biggest advice that I would that I would that I would tell you. Just get, make sure uh, that's okay. That's that's the best advice. Pay yourself first. Mm. Okay. Put it into a fund 
and put and invest it, but don't go into speculative investments. Just put it into what they call AFIC, which is where you where you're basically getting the the share index. Yeah, by the time you're 40 with the compound interest, you, you're going to have enough to retire without doing anything else. Yeah, I think that's really interesting touching on the financial side because it's so easy to forget. Most of us go in as a contractor and, oh, I don't want to put my money into super. Like, I don't have to. I'm just going to spend it. I'm going to do this or that. But you can put 25K in with a significantly low um, tax rate. Oh, absolutely. And- it's, it's the most tax effective way. And this is not financial advice. This is just our personal opinions. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but that's the first thing you want to do at a young age. Do that. I wish I did. I didn't start putting money into super until I think I was forty-eight. Jeff, you've got enough avenues. You're, you're, I'm sure you're okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be okay now. <laughs> uh, Dr. Jeff Hall, I cannot say how much I appreciate your time and everything you're doing for the industry, all the education, bringing things, Invisalign to Australia, Smile Fast to Australia, other things like that. Um, thank you so much for sharing your vision with the Dental Head Start podcast. Dave, look, thanks for the kind invitation. I'd love to come back when I can, when we've got this new product that we yep. can actually talk about and, and show you what's involved. It's exciting times. All right. Thank you. That was such an enjoyable chat with Dr. Jeff Hall. He's a real gentleman. He's generous with his time. He's doing some great things for the industry and I uh, appreciate all of that advice. I always find it interesting when some people like Jeff talk about their dislike for dentistry early on or their struggles in dental school and then you look at where they are now and it's often just because they found their passion they found what excites them i think for many of us that can give us inspiration and i hope that really helps you in your path that you're taking right now Something else that might help you in your path because we all get this experience is um, difficulty with anesthesia. We can't quite get that patient numb. We, they've got a tooth, it's a hot pulp and it's still sore. In this Ripe Global segment, Dr. Lincoln Harris is sharing his view on this and some tips to help you manage this situation and this patient better. This is useful stuff. And if you go to dentalheadstart.com slash ripeglobal, there's something else that's really useful. It's a discount code that'll get you 30% off for life with any of the Ripe Global online subscriptions. I know it shaped my first couple of years and it continues to do so. I hope you enjoy it. Have you ever had a patient that you did five lots of anesthetic, they don't go numb, they've got pain, they've got pain, and just before the end of the appointment, they suddenly go, oh, my jaw's numb. Dealing with a patient who doesn't go numb or has difficulty with anesthesia or has pain is very stressful for both them and for you. So there's a few tips for dealing with the patient who won't go numb. Listen to your patient. A lot of patients who don't go numb have a history of painful dentistry. So listen to them and look at them. So if a patient says, all my work has been painful up till now, don't assume that every other dentist they've ever been to is terrible and you're going to be the holy saviour of their life. Assume that it's because they are difficult to anaesthetise. So in such a patient, book longer. They, They sometimes just take longer. Think about nerve blocks. Nerve blocks are about 60 to 70% successful after five minutes. But after 25 minutes, they're about 95% successful. And that's not just the inferior alveolar nerve block, it's also any other nerve block that, that anaesthetists do, like spinal blocks and the radial and ulnar blocks and the blocks that they do in your leg. So all of these nerve blocks take time and their success improves with time. 
So if the patient has a history of difficult anesthesia, book longer. We mentioned this with the anxious patient, but patients who don't anesthetize easily are usually more anxious because it's had pain and when they get more anxious, their pain threshold drops and they feel even more pain. So a few things you can do there. One, some patients have extra pain fibers that are reduced or knocked out by ibuprofen. So if you give the patient ibuprofen preoperatively, it will reduce the sum of the pain fibers. Secondly, look at the patient. If you look at a patient and they have flat teeth from bruxing and they have massive bone structures and huge muscles, there's a high likelihood that this patient will be difficult to anesthetize because the bone is super thick, super dense, and all of their teeth are slightly inflamed from grinding and clenching. So in such a patient, you might want to put them on steroids the night before or anti-inflammatories just before the appointment. But most importantly, you know that they're going to be difficult just by the look of them and you are going to book much longer and you're going to plan on doing every type of anesthetic that you can. So such difficult patients, I want to do, say, a lower jaw, which is the one that we usually have difficulty with. I'm going to do a buccal infiltration on a lower molar. I'm going to do a lingual infiltration down deep, which knocks out any nerves that are coming in under the mylohyoid. Sometimes there's long buccal nerves or a nerve coming up from the platysma. So we want to get a, that buccal infiltration down fairly deep. I'm going to do a block and I'm not going to do one block. I'm going to always do two and on a really big patient with huge heavy bone structures, I'm going to do a triple block. So I'm going to use three lots of anesthetic on the block right at the start, not after it failed, but right at the start and I'm going to do periodontal ligament injections and I will have the burr out for doing intraosseous. The question might be why not just go straight for the infiltrations in the intraosseous because we know intraosseous injections generally have the high success rate. They do but they also wear off quickly. So it's best to have a nerve block so that you get long periods of anesthesia and then do the intraosseous injection as well. If you're afraid of doing an intraosseous injection then get someone to teach you it's really not it, it's it looks invasive but it's very easy i use a number three round burr mucogingival junction straight through the bone but it's easier if you're used to doing implants because you know what it feels like to drill through the cortical plate in general because it takes so long to get a person who's difficult to anesthetize anesthetized try and do more work at once so try and do book like three hours and do all the teeth in their quadrant because it's so much effort to get them numb once they're numb you want to do everything possible that you can. And give them some anxiolysis, give them some sort of medication so that they stay really chill and even better, so if they do have a little bit of pain, they don't remember it much afterwards. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com start to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists. 